We're going to get right into Revelation chapter 2 in just a moment. Uh, Revelation 2, if you also want to mark in your Bible numbers, uh, around numbers 25, we're going to be there in a little bit as well. Uh, numbers 25, Revelation 2 is our text for today. Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus introduces himself to Pergamum a bit more intensely than he has introduced himself to some of the other churches already. The other two, he is the one who walks among the lampstands, but here he is the one who has the words that are sharp like a two-edged sword. Once again, Jesus pulls this description of himself from the initial vision that John has in chapter 1, and he now describes himself to Pergamum, and it is timely and it is specific why he would describe himself this way. We did mention in chapter 1 when we talked about Jesus having a sword that proceeds from his mouth that this comes up again later in the book of Revelation in chapter 19 as Jesus returns on the white horse, his, his second coming, and he comes and words proceed from his mouth that devour and destroy the nations. Speaks of the power of his words, words of judgment. And so he gives this picture of his judgment initially to the church at Pergamum. We would do well to recognize that the words of Jesus uh, that, that he describes as two-edged here to Pergamum are also the words that we have received from Jesus. All of his words from Genesis to Revelation are described as a sword. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is, is quick, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword that pierces the dividing asunder, soul, spirit, joint, marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. God's word meant, means to penetrate us. And I, I appreciate what, what Dustin explained earlier about being contrite and being humble because it fits so well with how we should respond to God's words. 
Consider who is speaking. I appreciate from Isaiah 66, uh, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me and what, a, what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, pay attention to this, but this is the one to whom I will look. Doesn't that sound like something we want? We want him to look towards us. And the one he will look towards is the one who is humble, the one who is contrite, in his spirit. And here he adds one more qualifier, the one who trembles at my words. We must acknowledge who is speaking as we begin. Remember the source. The word from the Lord Jesus here to Pergamum begins with encouragement. Even though he introduces himself as a judge, he begins with encouragement. And so in verse 13, I know we can get right into this idea, what is Satan's throne? That's a pretty intriguing reference. Uh, but to better understand, we need to get a, a better perspective of, of Pergamum itself. Pergamum uh, was not on the coast like Ephesus was or Smyrna. It was inland about 16 miles. Cayman, if you want to throw that map up there, I just want to show you. Uh, we've already talked about Ephesus. This is uh, this is where Ephesus is located, the first letter. Second letter was Smyrna. It was a port city. Pergamum is up here, inland. The next letter will go to Thyatira, then Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So you can see that, that loop that the messenger would make to deliver these letters. And so uh, 16 miles inland, about 65 miles north of Smyrna. Its location fe featured an acropolis rising about 1,000 feet above the plain. And uh, if, if you've ever studied in the, the Roman and the Greek world, these acropolises were not necessarily natural. They would often be built up with dirt so that it was something that rose above the city and, and one of their major temples would go on top of that acropolis. It was almost like a, a steeple would be for a church. It means to indicate, hey, this is where God's people meet. It meant to indicate that, that this is what our city is about. The Hellenistic kingdom of the Adelaides ruled there in Pergamum between Alexander's successors until there was a transfer of Roman power in about 130 BC. And uh, there was a fortress that was there in this city during that particular time, but the city's loyalty to Rome, being one of those initial cities that flipped uh, to the Roman Empire, was rewarded in the providence, this providence being the first temple dedicated to the emperor cult worship. It was built in Pergamum soon after Augustus a consolidated power in 31 BC. That is important for us to remember. We'll come back to that in a moment. There was a temple to Athena. There was an altar to Zeus. There were temples to Dionysus and Demeter on the edge of town. There was a large complex uh, for the worship of Aesculapius, and the sick could go there. They would find healing there. And as in any of the other Asia minor cities, the ones that we've talked about, the ones we will talk about, uh, the wealthy citizens vied for distinction. The wealthy citizens wanted the privilege of serving as priests and, and priestesses in those temples. Various trade associations and community groups would participate in all sorts of festivities and celebrations. Uh, you had to be in the in crowd to be a part of the involvement in the community. And so Jesus refers to Pergamum as the place where Satan dwells. And then later he says, or initially says, this is where Satan's throne is. Then later he says, this is the place 
where Satan dwells. It's because Pergamum was considered a religious capital in this particular region. And one of the reasons historians look and see it was considered a, a religious capital is because it was the first location of the first temple that was built for the purpose of worshiping the Roman emperor. See, it wasn't enough in the Roman Empire for them to worship their gods. They had to create and make their emperor, Caesar, into a god. And so sacrifices would be made to the god, Caesar, and it became its own aspect of worship. This, along with several other significant temples that we mentioned, made Pergamum a stronghold for Satan, the deceiver, in the hearts of people. But despite that stronghold and the hostile environment that was created for the Christians, these Jesus followers in Pergamon, they held fast to Jesus' name. This is what he encourages them for. The Lord commends them. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They refused to altogether deny the name of Jesus. And we can infer from what Jesus says and from just understanding the time frame, they were undergoing significant persecution. There were many who were dying. That's what he alludes to next if you doubt the severity, there was a man named Antipas. And he died for his faith in Christ there in the city of Pergamum. The reference gives us no details. There's no explanation as to who killed him. There's no explanation as to how he died. What it says is that he died. He was killed for his faith. And it also says this. Jesus refers to him as what? My faithful witness. What an incredible and powerful testimony. To have the Lord Jesus Christ say, my faithful witness, Antipas. He's remembered that way for all of eternity. Last week, as Jesus addressed Smyrna, he didn't have anything negative to say to them. As a matter of fact, it was a more of a preparatory uh, uh, delivery and sermon for the, the persecution that was going to come to these people. According to Jesus, however, Pergamum does have to change some things. There's some corrections that they need to make and they need to make them right away. Jesus is angered by their embracing of false doctrine and the rebuke begins in verse 14. He writes this, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we have to ask the questions, who, who, are, who are Balaam? Who's Balak? Who are the Nicolaitans? And to understand Jesus' reference, we got to go back uh, 1,500 years from the time this letter is being written, 3,500 years, to the wilderness where Yahweh is leading Israel towards the promised land. As their time in the wilderness was drawing to a close, Moses inquired of Shion, the king of the Amorites, if they might pass through their land on their way to the promised land. And this is land that's on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, if you can picture that in your mind, the geography. And, and Shion not only says no to Moses and the children of Israel, but he decides, I'm going to put my army together, and I'm going to go fight against them. And that's exactly what he does. And guess what Yahweh did to the armies of the Amorites? He annihilated them. They've already got some land. 
Well, Og, the king of Bashan, he sees this as well, and, and so he wants to take his shot at Israel. Maybe, maybe their armies are a little tired, and so he takes his shot at Israel, and Yahweh delivers Og, the king of Bashan, into their hands as well. Well, these two victories make Balak, the king of Moab, quite nervous. He, he sees what happens to his surrounding neighbors, his friends, and so he sends a message to a man named Balaam, who is a diviner, one who communicates with the gods. And, and, I, and I found this interesting. I, I always thought Balaam was a local boy. He was actually 400 miles north of this particular area, the Dead Sea. He was far north. And so they send a messenger all the way up here to find this diviner named Balaam. So it, it shows how celebrity he is. He's well known for what he does. And here's the message. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. So this is Balak to Balaam. There's a people that have come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth and they're dwelling opposite me. So I want you to come now and curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. And perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. Numbers 22 Verses five and six. King Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel so he has a chance. So he might be able to do something. But Balaam is pretty upfront with, with Balak and says, I don't, I don't change the minds of the gods. I simply deliver the message of the gods. I, I, I let people see the will of the gods. Well, the story goes on from there. We don't have time for all the details, but it's a pretty fun story because... Balaam eventually gets on his donkey and travels, and this is where the donkey refuses to go. There's an angel of the Lord that stands in front of the donkey, and the donkey slams Balaam into the side of the wall, and he, he hits the donkey, and eventually the donkey still won't go, and he just lays down, and, and Balaam keeps hitting the donkey, and the donkey turns around and says, why are you hitting me? And it's, it's a funny story, it's a comical story, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a twist of sarcasm in this story. Because what's going on here is, is Balaam is the celebrity diviner of the gods. And a diviner of the gods can't see clearly that there is an angel from the Lord standing in his way, but a donkey can. It's a humiliating story for a person like Balaam. Well, Balaam eventually makes it, and Balak says, all right, let's do this. And so, uh, as was the process, they go on top of a high mountain and they set up all these, these altars and sacrifices and he, he goes to offer the, the curse and what comes out? A blessing. Yahweh sends a blessing to his people through Balaam, the diviner. And Balak is just beside himself. What are you doing? And so they try another mountaintop, another set of sacrifices. He goes to offer the curse and out comes a blessing. Third mountaintop, third offer of a curse, out comes a blessing. And Balak is extremely upset with what's taken place. Very cool story uh, as far as we can look at and, 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 and study. If you, if you want to learn more about it, start in Numbers 22. Read that this afternoon. But it's what comes after these encounters that Jesus references in his letter to Pergamum. In Numbers 25, and, and you can look at this with me if you'd like, I'm going to start reading verse 1. Here's what happens. While Israel lived in Shittim, 
the people, the people of Israel, they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Right? These are, these are Balak's people. Uh, they, these invited the people in to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. What we learn here is that though Israel hasn't stopped worshiping Yahweh, they still recognize Yahweh as their God. They also started worshiping Baal, the God of the Moabites, the God of the Amorites. And so they have Yahweh, but, but now they also have Baal too. And because this violates the Sinai covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, that you shall have no other gods before me, there are none other, Yahweh brings a plague on the people of Israel. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's a plague that begins to kill them. And with all of the people dying, and people, uh, as Scripture describes it, weeping at, at the doorway of the tabernacle, there's a man in Israel who has the audacity to go to the Midianite camp. And he brings a Midianite woman back into the camp of Israel. And he brings her into his tent. And they begin to get, engage in sexual immorality. Phinehas, the priest, uh, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, he grabs his spear. And he makes his way to the man's tent. And he enters and he stabs it through both the man and the woman. And that action causes the plague to cease, but not before it killed 24,000 Israelites. I mean, it's an incredibly remarkable story. But what does it have to do with Balaam and Balak? What we learn later in Numbers 31, if you want to look there at verse 16, is that Balaam was somehow involved in this great sin, in the exchange and introducing Israel to Baal, Moses says it this way, says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice, on Balaam's advice, they caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregations of the Lord. Balaam, the, the diviner of the gods, has introduced the Baal, the, the god of the, the, the Amorites and the god of the Moabites, to Israel, encouraging them to serve him, to worship him as well. And so in Numbers, Balaam and Balak put this stumbling block of Baal in front of Israel, causing them to fall into idolatry, causing them to fall into sexual immorality. This is a pattern of, of syncretism that would plague Israel for generations to come. Syncretism is the mixing of religions. It's saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take my Yahweh, but I'll also take my Baal too, and I'll, I'll take my other gods, and I'll just put them together. And Israel was trying to mix 
the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. And from this point on, if you know the history of Israel, they continue to struggle. And they struggle mightily with this particular first God that was put in their path, Baal. In the same manner, there were some in the Pergamum church who were leading the Jesus followers into syncretistic idolatry and sexual immorality. As Jesus says in verse 15 back in Revelation 2, so also, in the same way that, that Balaam did what he did to Israel, so also there are some in your church of Pergamum who are leading others into idolatry. Some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this isn't the first time that the Nicolaitans have been mentioned. You may remember uh, these are the followers of Nicholas. They were mentioned in the letter to Ephesus. No description was given. It's not an isolated group. It's something that is infecting all sorts of churches. It's in Ephesus. It's in Pergamum. I have no doubt it was in other locations as well. And honestly, the extent of what we know about the Nicolaitans is what Jesus offers in this description and metaphor. They're doing to the church what Balaam did to Israel. This is the extent of their trouble. They were leading Jesus' followers in Pergamum, in Ephesus, um, to worship idols. They were somehow encouraging the, the blending of, of Christian doctrine with that of the, the false religions of the day, the paganism that was around them. This is the syncretism. And so they were teaching the followers of Jesus to keep on following Jesus, but you can also have a little fun with the cult prostitutes. You can also go to these festivals and these activities and, and if you go to those things, it, it won't be so hard on you. The persecution won't be so great. Their sales line might be, why would Jesus want you to live in poverty? If you just attend a weekly worship ceremony of the emperor, you can keep your job. You can keep your house. You can shop wherever you want to shop. You'll be considered a part of the community. Might have been one of their lines, but I'm sure there were some who were looking back at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first one where he says in chapter 8 and chapter 10, you don't have anything to do with those idols. You know, it's the whole meat offered to idols argument. And Paul says, you, you got to stay away. You can't engage in those festivities. You can't go to those places. What communion does light have with darkness? You must stay away and abstain well, as is typically the case, their message of, of syncretism and mixing these things together would inevitably lead to the fulfillment of their own selfish um, and sexual desires, revolting in sexual immorality that was taking place in and among the Christians in Pergamum. And so Jesus doesn't mince words like, like Phineas who takes that spear and just jams it on through. Jesus simply opens his mouth and says, therefore, Repent. Repent. He offers no explanation, no excuse for them. The simple command is these Christians must immediately repent. They must turn from their idolatry. They must turn from their immorality. They must fully embrace Jesus. They must dismiss those who would persist to teach the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. And if they do not repent, Jesus promises that he will come soon and he will war against them with his own mouth. 
His judgment will fall. They will be pierced just as Balaam and Balak were both ultimately pierced in the book of Numbers, judged for what they had done to Israel. The last point is, again, a promise. Jesus rewarding the conquerors. He encourages them, listen, don't, don't dismiss what I have to say. If you've got ears, hear it, pay attention. It says the conqueror, the one who remains faithful to Jesus, the one who, who repents, who doesn't follow the ways of the Nicolaitans, he will receive the hidden manna. This seems to be a promise of Jesus' provision for his people. He's just talked about them in the wilderness. We know that the original manna was there. God provided every day food, substance for them. And now Jesus says, remain faithful to me and I'll provide your daily needs. I'll, I'll supply for you what you need to make it through. Now I understand that may have additional meaning to that original audience, the recipients in, uh, in Pergamum. Some of that may be lost on us today, but the, the hidden man is not the only thing they'll receive. Notice what he says next. You're also going to get a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but I also have no doubt they did. This was a personal promise Jesus is making to them, something that related in their culture, something that was related to their church. And we don't have to know exactly what this means. What we need to know is that Jesus is making a promise to care for his people. You remain faithful to me, I'll remain faithful to you. I'll provide for you, I will see you through. That's the promise he makes. So what do, what do we do with this? Let me give you three, three implications. Last week the encouragement um, to Smyrna was to remain faithful to Jesus even to death. Be faithful to Jesus, even to death. That same encouragement rings true in this letter. These, these like those, those citizens and those Christians in Smyrna, they are undergoing persecution. They are under the threat of death. Antipas, one of their own, has already been killed. And many in Pergamum were remaining faithful, even though there was pressure from the outside to, to deny Christ. And there was even pressure here from the inside People inside their church were encouraging them to, to move away from Jesus, to move in different directions. Satan wanted to trip up the Pergamum Christians. And he wants to trip us up too. He is the enemy. He's a roaring lion who walks about seeking what? Who he may devour. Not who he may please or bless, who he may devour. And so Jesus encourages them, remain faithful to my name. Remain faithful to the end. Don't let the, the wisdom and the ways of the world come in and poison the water. As I thought of that, I, I thought of the Apostle Paul who said, I, I fought a good fight. Says, I've, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's the goal that, that Jesus has for these Pergamum Christians. That's the goal he has for us. Finish your race. Keep the faith to the end. There's a lot of pressure from the outside to deny Christ, 
to disbelieve the faith that's been instilled and growing in you. We live in a culture of of cynicism and skepticism that wants to deny those core truths of, of, of the universe, of who we are in Christ. We must strive to keep the faith. And we must also work as a church, we're going to talk about that in a moment, to make sure there's no pressure within to push people away from Christ and to push them in other directions. Fight the good fight. It's incredible to think um, after 1,500 years, the teaching of Balaam still persisted. Right? That, that was, a, that was a, a thing that Jesus could bring up and they would understand it. it. It was the same thing, the same tactic that was being used, but the reality is we're, we're 3,500 years removed from Balaam and that teaching still persists. The idea that there are other things out there it still infects the church of Jesus Christ how and where. Syncretism is still an issue. The first time I learned the word syncretism was in a missions class. And in the missions class, it was explained in this way, that you, know, you go to a field and you go to maybe a tribe, a group of people, and one of the first things you have to do is learn those people. You have to learn their culture. You may have to learn their language. You have to learn what they worship and why they worship it and all of these things. And then you have a better way of engaging them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what syncretism does is it takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and it takes their religious beliefs and it puts the two together. And that's not what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul, as he outlines for us and shows us by his own example, no, no, you have to turn from your other gods and turn to Christ because there's only one. And, and syncretism is when you, you try to blend those things together and it's easier for maybe missionaries to, to reach those people if they can take those other things and just blend those, those religious practices. But it's not the right way to do things. It's idolatrous. But what I've learned is that syncretism can still happen in American churches. We can still take other things and mix worldly things in with Jesus and create our own idolatries. A couple questions that would kind of push us in this direction. Where are you tempted to mix Jesus with something else? Where, where are you tempted to embrace the ways of this world even though they are in contradiction to the ways of Jesus that are taught to us in Scripture? I've got a few things that I came up with. I even... I sent up the bat signal this week to some of my, my buddies to try to help me think through this stuff as well. A popular term of late is Christian nationalism. You've probably heard that or read that. And I'm a believer that those two don't go together. There's not a Christian nationalism. There's Christian and there's a kingdom. Um, I am disgusted by the, the mixture of Jesus and politics that have been happening of late. Now, I, I love my country. I love America. What an incredible privilege it is to be where we are and live where we are, have the freedoms that we have. But whether, whether it is people on the left, people on the right, using Jesus as a means to advance their ideology 
their politics on other people. It mixes things that sometimes shouldn't be mixed. And so, so it may be something we can, we can look in recent events with what happened at the Capitol a year ago. You got people that are carrying banners with, with scripture on them and then they break the law. It's Trump holding up a Bible in front of a church for a photo op. It's Biden quoting Isaiah 6 about, here am I, send me, this incredibly beautiful passage to describe our, our military and how they go wherever they're called to go. And I love our military, and I love that they go where they're called to go, but that's misappropriation of Scripture. And let's be honest, politicians have been doing that for many, many, many years, taking God's Word and using it for their own purposes. Jesus is pro-kingdom. We have to understand that Jesus is just as concerned about his people in Russia as he is his people in America. He loves his people in China just as much as he loves his people in the good old U.S. of A. America is not the promised land. America has been referred to as a city on a hill. Again, a misappropriation. No, the church is the city on the hill. America is not the standard of Christianity for the world to model themselves after either. And so we, we have to reject those who would tempt us to somehow wed Jesus to political parties and movements, whether they're politicians, people on social media, cable news hosts, who, whoever they may be. Uh, I am a people of a kingdom before I'm a people of a nation. You're a citizen of heaven more than you're a citizen of the United States of America. That doesn't miss, we mean we dismiss and we, we, we deny our citizenship in this country. And, and, and we don't root for, for America and the Olympics that are coming up and those kinds of things. I'm just saying we have to make sure our priorities are in place. You get maybe 80 years as a citizen of the United States of America. You've got all eternity as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. And that's the primary focus that we find in Scripture. And so we just have to be very careful. What about this one? What about fame? Isn't that the way of America? I gotta, I gotta make a name for myself. I gotta prove my value. I want people to know who I am. That's, that's the way of the world. You want the top corner office. Uh, you wanna be the best at what you do. And I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with those things, but if that's the primary goal, if that's the motive, then it's off base with the kingdom of Jesus. Because Jesus says, no, the last will be first, and the first will be last, and those who are the greatest will be servant of all. And so we, we sometimes find a mixture of ideologies. How about treating the church like a business? Pastor, CEO, you got to market to appeal to the masses, tailor the church to meet the demands of, of the consumers that you're trying to reach, measuring, uh, measuring successes by numbers and metrics. We don't see any of that in the New Testament. It's a very American way of doing things, very Western way of doing things, but it's not the way in which the church of Jesus Christ operates. The pursuit of money and materialism, that's, that's the, the American dream. Right? And I'll just, I'll say it this way, diehard capitalism sometimes doesn't mix very well 
with what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. Sometimes you read what Jesus says, you say, man, he sounds a little liberal. Don't know if I could vote for him. Don't know if I could follow him. We have to be very careful with the way in which our love for money, Jesus calls us to something more radical. Sexual identity, transgenderism, homosexuality, this is where we're at as a culture. You embrace these things. This, even though it seems very unreal, has become the new reality in which we're called to live. And, and if you don't recognize that, that this person who was born a man is, is, is now a woman, then you're wrong. We're pressed hard to accept those things. It doesn't mean we don't love them. Somebody who's in that position is obviously struggling very much. Satan is attacking very much in their life. And we want to come alongside and we want to love them and we want to encourage them and we want to support them and we want to show them what is true and that Jesus loves them. But the pressure is on for, for Christians and churches to just simply embrace this. They even use the words of Jesus to try to convince us to embrace that. Just like the Christians in Pergamum would feel the pressure to join everyone in the common festivals. Do what we do. Be like us. Join our celebration. Join the feast. We feel and will continue to feel with greater intensity the pressure to embrace the ideologies of the world as time marches on. Many of you in your lifetime would say, oh, the pressure is far more intense today than it was 30 years ago. So if we find ourselves struggling with these ideologies and, and struggling with the syncretism, we have to repent of the idolatry. The idolatries that what, what are they doing? They're diminishing the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing. They're saying, don't just look at Jesus, look at these other gods, look at these other things of wisdom in this world. No, He is the wisdom of the world. He is the one towards we look. He is the, what all of history is moving towards. All of these idols and ideologies will fall and collapse. And if you build your life on them, you will fall and you will collapse. So we must repent. We must learn to fear the sword as Jesus speaks these challenging words to us. But finally, we rejoice in the promises that are made to those who conquer. We rejoice. Think about this that Jesus gives us the opportunity to repent. Jesus says to these Christians who have obviously turned from him, just repent, come back. Stop doing what you're doing. And some of the things they were doing were, were pretty bad. They would be bad in our estimation. Cult prostitution, 
Yeah, you think that's, that's pretty crazy. And Jesus says, no, no, come back. And so Jesus gives the opportunity to repent. He also gives the means to repent by his own death, by his own resurrection. Our sins can be forgiven. And he says, just come back. Why? Because his mercy is great. His mercy is greater than our sin. I like what Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And his grace is shown to us in these opportunities he gives us to repent. So friends, I just, I just conclude with the challenge. Following Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Following Jesus is worth the suffering that, that will come as a result of being faithful to him. This is what Pergamon was facing. This is what we'll continue to face. But he's worth it every time. And he will be worth it all the more when we're gathered with people from all of the nations, people of the kingdom, saying worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. I'm gonna ask you to bow with me Maybe today you just rejoice in the mercy that is ours in Christ. Maybe you're facing suffering. Maybe you're facing persecution. And you just need strength. You need the Spirit to strengthen you and increase your faith so that you can, you can continue to be faithful to Christ. He promises that strength to His people. Or maybe there's an idolatry. Maybe you've begun to mix in your mind the thinking of the world with the thinking of the kingdom. You have other loves. Get back to your first love. Repent and turn to Christ. I'm gonna give you just a moment here in the quiet to pray. Father, it is a, it's a beautiful thing. to consider that Jesus doesn't address Pergamum, he doesn't address Metaview, he doesn't address these churches because he hates them, he addresses because he loves. And he's washing us white. And he's ironing out the wrinkles of his bride. And so God, I, I pray that you would iron the wrinkles out of us. That you would cleanse us today was to be more faithful, more in love with our Savior. Help us to, to keep the faith as we strive to finish the race that's set before us. And all the while recognizing that it's, it's not our strength, it's your grace, it's your mercy. You create the opportunity, you create the means. You do it all. So we're grateful for that today. And God, I just pray that you would protect Metaview from idolatry. That you would keep us clean and pure. And that when it begins to rear its, its head, Lord, the Spirit would bring conviction and we would repent 
we would come back holy to Christ. Would keep us from that, we pray. I pray that for the many other churches in our own community. Churches around the world, some of which we're invested in with our own missions partners, God, that they would avoid the idolatry that Satan brings to tempt us with. God help us. We pray. We pray it in Jesus' name.